0: This morning, we'll return, of course, to Awareness of Awareness. And in this regard, just to draw a parallel, some of you might be familiar with the story, I've told a number of times, of a conversation, rather long conversation, between the brilliant world-class experimental physicist Anton Seilinger, who in a Minor Life meeting in 1997 was describing to His Holiness, their modes of research into the actual nature of elementary particles. And His Holiness uh, was li- listening, I can say, with rapt attention. I mean, enormous interest. I had the wonderful, marvelous uh, privilege of serving as interpreter with Thupen for that meeting. And, as, and Anton drew the conclusion, and very importantly, based upon experimental physics, not just thinking really brilliant thoughts, but experiments, and he's a a true empiricist, a radical empiricist, among all the scientists I've engaged with. And there's quite a few by now. I don't know of anyone who is more of a radical empiricist than Anton Seilinger. So he finally drew this conclusion. He said, you know, Your Holiness, when we really are investigating into the very nature of elementary particles, we just don't find them as something that's really objective from their own side. It's a very close paraphrase of what he said. And his Holiness responded with some surprise and delight, he said, that's amazing you can draw that conclusion. that You come to that conclusion without knowing Madhyamaka philosophy. You know, And then Anton said, well, what's Madhyamaka philosophy? He came because he was, simply has a very open mind, a very inquisitive mind, but not because he knew much of anything about Buddhism. So then His Holiness gave a brilliant thumbnail sketch of the central themes of Madhyamaka, middle way, philosophy. And now it was Anton's time to listen with rapt Attention, And when His Holiness showed how through this type of ontological investigation, both intellectually as well as ex- experient- experientially, that one comes to the conclusion that no phenomena exist by their own inherent nature, then Anton turned around and said, it's amazing you could come to that conclusion without knowing quantum mechanics. <laughs> it, was just a, it was a brilliant conversation. And it led to then His Holiness, accepting Anton's immediate invitation to come the next year to, to Innsbruck to his lab to, for, for Anton actually sh- to show him the experiments, one by one the experiments, by which the physicists had drawn these conclusions. It's quite extraordinary. So perhaps we're living in very exciting times and not only very dismal times. In terms of seeing a, a very profound convergence, between some of the most cutting-edge branches of science, I think, especially physics, and the most cutting-edge empirical inquiry in Buddhism, one coming very obviously, from the outside in. I mean, they're looking I mean, Galileo started by looking at the moon, sun, stars and planets, and following, and then looking at terrestrial physical objects as well, exactly on that trajectory starting with the assumption that, of course, God created them and they were out there before human beings ever came along and they were inherently existent. And we now need to map what God created, coming with from a quite a natural metaphysical realism perspective and then coming as a result of 400 years of inquiry and coming to the conclusion, as Anton stated in another context, until now, he said, we've always been assuming that our physics is mapping onto some external independent reality. And now we know that all such claims are meaningless. That it's information that is primary, and all that we know about reality pertains to is rel- relative to our modes of inquiry. But never do we leap beyond our systems of measurement, beyond appearances to map on some reality that is objective, independent, inherently existent. Now, if one is focusing on the outside, and especially if it's not within a whole context of transforming one's whole way of life, ethically, and and Anton, I believe, is a very ethical person, so absolutely no judgment implied, uh, but without a radical transformation of lifestyle, and without a radical transformation of one's own mind, namely, especially development of samadhi, an exceptional mental balance across the boards, then you may intellectually come to the conclusion that electrons, galaxies, and so forth do not exist from their own side, objectively, inherently, that all that we know of them exists relative to our systems of measurement. But that insight may just hover there, hover as an object of knowledge, without tapping, for example, one's own mental afflictions. It just hovers, because it's not embedded, it's not integrated into a whole way of life and a mind, okay? It could be, it's not. Now, the 18th century, no, 17th century, I forget. 5th Dalai Lama, which century? 17th? 17th century, I'm quite sure. 17th century. His tutor, or that is, is one of his kind of consultants, doctrinal consultants, Kama Rinpoche, from the and Dzogchen tradition. When he's dealing with Vipassana, he comments there are two approaches to realizing the emptiness of phenomena. And one is by, he said, by focusing primarily outwardly to different objects, to people, to material objects, to space, to time, to abstract things like justice or what have you, but just kind of going through and investigating a wide variety of many different types, classes of phenomena, and seeing whether any one of them stands up to ontological analysis, that it really exists from its own side, by its own inherent nature. He said this approach of looking outside from one objective phenomena to another is like needing firewood, nice dry firewood. And going to a tree, a living tree, and snipping off its branches one by one until finally you've snipped off all of its branches and then the tree, having no no leaves anymore, dries up, dries up right down to the trunk, and then then you've got your dry firewood. But it took a while. He said another way of getting dry firewood is to come to the same tree and just hack it right off at the root. Just go for one target at the root, sever the root, its tap root, and then all the branches and all the leaves just dry up of their own accord. Similarly, he said, if you emphasize above all the nature of your own mind and realize the emptiness of your own mind, then thereafter you turn your attention to all objective phenomena that appear to your mind, to realize emptiness of all of those would be quite easy. They will dry up of their own accord. With just a little bit of investigation, they'll just, they'll fall, they'll fall, they'll fall. So he said in the Mahamudra tradition, the Dzogchen tradition, primary emphasis, realize the emptiness of your own mind first. And then the emptiness of all other phenomena will come quite easily the realization of that will come quite easily. That's what we're doing here. As we venture now crossing, crossing the threshold this morning from flat-out shamatha, on the nature of awareness, to probing into the nature of the observer. And whether there's... It's a real simple question. I look at, uh, look at Laura. Is there someone in there? Because I'm seeing a form, I'm seeing a form, I'm seeing the front of her body. I look at her face say, is there somebody in there? Am I, somebody in there? Or is it just a hologram? Is there somebody looking back? I think I'm over here, but are you really over there? You know? And we're asking this question of ourselves, rather than going outwards. As the, the awareness, the attention is inverted, we're looking in to see, is there someone in here? Is there someone in here? Someone observing? Someone observing? Some thing. Some entity. Someone. That's actually observing. But in here. Not floating someplace, but in here. Probing in there. And as we do so, because I want to front load this a little bit, so when we, when we do the practice, I won't, how do you say Disturb your meditation with more speaking. I'd like to talk more now, less later. Here's a question you might pose. As you're sitting there very, very quietly and just probing inwards, check. And it's your own experience. It's not just thinking con- some abstract conceptual thoughts. It's probing right into your experience. Does the observer have a gender? The observer. Man or woman? Check check. You may think you already know the answer, but check. Old or young? Spanish speaker? English speaker? Make sure the probe is quiet. Mm -hmm. Not, ¿Cómo está usted? (laughs) (laughs) You didn't think I knew any Spanish. Habla (laughs) muy buenos español. So probe in there to see whether there's someone in there that has any characteristics at all, really, from your own side, subjectively. And of course, the reflection here, if we are doing an inverse Vipassana practice, then we'd look at it any, out into the world, where we identify any object, anything that has attributes. Anything that has attributes. It can be a person, it can be a bottle of water, it can be space, it can be... Anything at all. And then in the Dzogchen Vipassana approach, there are many, multiple approaches, they're very complementary. But the Dzogchen Vipassana approach is to take any object to mind after one is probed inwardly. Now it's a mopping up procedure. Because if you've realized the emptiness of the mind, the others are going to be easy. But the mopping up goes. Now watch for any object of the mind, anything that has attributes. And then investigate carefully what is the referent of the word can you identify it objectively? Is it there from its own side? The referent of the word, bird, mountain, tree, foot, justice, time, space, particle, galaxy, sun, moon, anything. What's the referent of the word? Is it really there from its own side? This phenomena that has attributes and is cloaked in appearances. And we see the appearances, but we want to know what is the object that has The color, the shape, the other attributes that actually appear as if the appearances are the cloak, the garment, the attributes, the qualities of the object in question. And we're asking about the object in question. Are you really out there? Are you really out there? But we're not doing that. I'm just giving you the complimentary approach. What we're going to go in is going to go right to the core. Luke Skywalker going into the Death Star to find that one soft spot that one little soft spot and you tap that and send your little missile of ontological investigation and hit the tops hit the soft spot the whole death star is toast <laughs> <laughs> so let's go in and may the force be with you you <laughs> Settle your body, speech, and mind in their natural states. Let your eyes be partially open. Very gently cast your gaze downwards, soft, relaxed, without focusing your attention on anything, without taking anything as an object of awareness. For a moment, just rest and be present. Draw your awareness in upon the experience of being aware, with no interest in any appearances to awareness, any objects of the mind. And now draw your awareness even further inwards with an open mind, with a genuine question. Is there an experience of there being, or perhaps you being, an observer in here who is attending to awareness? Is there a subject? And if so, attend closely, probe deeply, to see if you can identify the characteristics of this subjective observer. Focus sharply and concentrate. Then utterly release your awareness out into space, taking nothing as an object. Just releasing. Whatever thoughts arise, release them instantly at any time. And oscillate at your own rhythm, inverting your awareness in upon the observer, attending closely, inspecting closely. Releasing awareness out into space and all the while gently sustaining the flow of awareness of awareness. the oscillation and let your awareness gently come to rest in the center, neither released out into space or inverted in upon a subject, but beyond the demarcation of subject and object inside and outside, let awareness rest in its own place illuminating and knowing itself. Quite a few years ago, the Benedictine monk, Lawrence Freeman, a very dear friend of mine and close associate of His Holiness, they've done three workshops together. He invited His Holiness for the first time, that is, with him as the inviter, invited His Holiness to England to do something very bold, very dangerous, for which the possibility of catastrophe was quite significant. And that is to for his Holiness invited his Holiness to give a commentary on passages of the New Testament. You can imagine that could that could turn out really awful, could really awful you know just really may, may deeply irritate all the Christians like you're appropriating our scriptures. What are you doing you know and his holiness just handled this with enormous grace and insight, and there were Christians attending it was a public a public meeting, so he He took these patches, the uh, Sermon on the Mount and I believe others, gave a Buddhist commentary on them, uh, to the the delight of everyone. There are plenty of Christians there, Buddhists there, and they all listened. And it it turned into really a wonderful book called The Good Heart. It's published by Wisdom Publications. His holiness is very often commented that between the theistic religion of, let's say, Christianity, for example, and then Buddhism, there's a great deal of common ground in terms of what Buddhists would call skillful means. And that is ideals of altruism, of ethics, of nonviolence, of compassion, of loving kindness, of generosity, and so forth. And the list really goes on and on and on of pointing out there's really a lot of common ground here and we can learn a lot from each other in that regard, you know. And then, in a spirit of total candor and utter honesty, which he always displays, he says, but when it comes to the side of wisdom, of view, there are some, there's some important distinctions. In other words, we can't just, it's not just one big religion and all one happy family. Oh, gee, we all are really, really agree on everything, you know? It's not the case. And he said, and he's referring really, I think, quite explicitly to mainstream Christianity. This is Roman Catholicism, uh, the various Protestant groups, and so forth. Mainstream Christianity, there's a belief in God who created heaven and earth, and it does exist from God's own perspective. He created it, He's looking at it, and it really exists from his perspective. And of course, that's exactly the view of Galileo, of Newton, James Clerk Maxwell, so many, many Christians within the scientific tradition, including the head of the, uh, the American Human Genome Project. He's a devout Christian. I can't remember his name right now, but very, very public, very Christian. And he said, that view is just incompatible with the Buddhist view of dependent origination, of all phenomena arising as dependent related events and being empty of inherent nature. That view is not really compatible with that theistic view of God as a creator really creating things as they are. And then, of course, human beings coming on afterwards and and surveying what God had created, this absolutely objectively real, inherently existent universe. So this is a point of mm, difference, And we should just be content with that, we shouldn't try to smudge everything together or blur everything together. This is a real significant difference. And I'm sure he's right. I mean, I I don't really know how one can launch a counter-argument to that. This can draw some modern people to the conclusion, ah, good, Buddhism is an atheistic religion, I'm an atheist Buddhist. I'm an atheist Buddhist. Well, the bad news there is there's not a single school of Buddhism on the planet that is atheistic. All schools, the Theravada, the Zen, the Chan, the Indian, the Tibetan, Mongolian, they all believe in a wide variety of deities, gods. There isn't one that doesn't. Indra the king of gods and a whole host of gods of the desire realm, the form realm, the formless realm. There's no school ever in 2,500 years that just says, we are atheists. We just don't believe in any higher beings above human beings. There isn't one. So if one is an atheist Buddhist, congratulations, you've just established your new religion. It started with you, because you got no roots. Before you said it, it didn't exist. So why don't you just call yourself Buddha? I'm the new Buddha. My name is? You want to worship me? Except for don't, because I'm not a god either. So atheistic Buddhism is simply an oxymoron. Because if it's atheistic, it's not Buddhism. Because there is no school of Buddhism for the whole time that simply flat out denied the existence of higher beings called devas. And in fact, one of the epithets of the Buddha is in Tibetan "Hla Hla," the God of Gods. The being, the enlightened one, to whom even the gods would make pay homage, would bow. Requested him as he sat under under the seat under the tree of enlightenment. Two gods came to him, and according to the best accounts we have. Came to him and requested that he turn the wheel of Dharma. Two gods did that. So to say there weren't any gods means nobody asked Buddha to teach, which means he didn't teach. Therefore, there's no Buddhism. So, so much for atheistic Buddhism. There's agnostic Buddhism, and that there are agnostic Buddhists, and that's not an oxymoron. I'm an agnostic Buddhist. Agnostic, agnostic means don't know. I don't know a lot of things. And I am a Buddhist. Therefore I'm a don't know Buddhist. Therefore I'm an agnostic Buddhist. But I passionately want to know the nature of consciousness, the nature of karma, all of the dimensions of consciousness. I want to know nirvana. I want to I want to know full enlightenment. I'm going to do everything I can to know it. So I'm agnostic, but I'm hoping that's going to be a short term affiliation as short as possible. A lot of agnostic Buddhists, I think, nowadays are rather complacent in the sense of not doing the hard work of really putting in the tens of thousands of hours to meditate to put the Buddhist hypotheses to the test of experience. I would rather say, oh, no, the Buddha probably just got them from somebody else, or what have you. That's kind of just complacent agnosticism, and that can last forever. you will just be ignorant indefinitely. But is that the final word in terms of Christianity and Buddhism, theism and Buddhism, wherever it fits into these Western categories of theism, atheism, and so forth and so on. And I think quite clearly not. That's not the end of the discussion. But before launching any further, and this will be very short, but it's quite interesting that Stephen Hawking followed this same trajectory in his own brilliant line of thinking. Whenever his brief history of time came out, what was it, 20 years ago or so, something like that? Fifty, maybe fifteen years ago, but there he still posited maybe, you know, maybe there's there's a, there's a place for God in the universe. So there was that still. This is really possible. Maybe there's God, and God as as understood in the Abrahamic traditions. And moreover, there's got to be. It's inevitable that there will be eventually a grand unified theory, a theory of everything, that synthesizes impeccably general relativity theory of Einstein and quantum mechanics. There's got to be. It's, it's, it's inevitable. It will happen, and we'll have a, a gut, a grand unified theory. Those two statements are very closely aligned. And that is, if there's a God who created everything, one God created one universe, then all of its parts should fit together, and all of the theories that correctly map it should all integrate, because it's one integrated system. So if quantum mechanics is getting part, and general relativity is getting part, of one integrated, absolutely existent system, they've got to be integrated sooner or later. But then he follows his own line of, now as a theoretical physicist, his his own line of inquiry. And lo and behold, it should come as no surprise. It doesn't come as any surprise to a knowledgeable Buddhist. That, in his latest book, came out only about a month ago, he's now come to the conclusion that we'll never have a grand unified theory. It'll never happen. That all of our theories are true insofar as they're true relative to experience experience is primary which is another way of saying information is primary and in the same breath there's now no need for God at all no need those two statements are utterly integrated with each other but now so we see the Dalai Lama making a very similar comment Stephen Hawking making very similar content Anton Seininger very similar content but is that, is that the final word? And I would suggest no. Mainstream Christianity has, to a very large extent, abandoned its own contemplative roots. And by no coincidence, not, not just by sheer happenstance, it abandoned them just as the rocket of modern science took off, attending outwards as Galileo, the would-be contemplative who wanted to stay in the monastery and devote his life to contemplative practice, father kicked him out, said, I won't pay for it, get a job. So he got a job. He said, okay, I'll I'll become the first scientist of history. That's a job. I'm up for it. He did a cracking good job of it. He did a very good job of it. So with the rise of that, then contemplative, I mean, obviously this is simplistic, but I think it's a true statement. With the rise of modern science, there was a corresponding decline of contemplative contemplative inquiry because all the juice of these devout Christians was now directed outwards. And it was so exciting. I mean, imagine the thrill. Just imagine the thrill of being there in Galileo's era and Newton's. The whole universe lies before you and you've got this new method the scientific method and better technology You've got mathematics to know the the language of god it must have been just intoxicating you know? i think it really thrilling even before they were giving out nobel prizes you know really into it and so but before that happened there was this long flow of profound contemplative inquiry within the christian tradition of course other theistic traditions i'm just focusing on christianity and to my mind from my reading going back to the very, very early centuries, the Desert Fathers, and on through the the Eastern Orthodox, the Western tradition, on to Nicholas of Cusa. And you look at his writings. This is the Neoplatonic current. So the guru of gurus, it goes back to Pythagoras, to Socrates, to Plato, to Neoplatonism, to Christian Neoplatonism, and then on. So it has two gurus. It goes back to Jesus and to Plato. And there, in this mystical vision of God, he's no longer simply somebody out there who created something absolute, but rather a God within, the kingdom of heaven within, the God who sees from our own eyes, breaking through inwardly, and I think this is just almost a direct quote from Nicholas of Cusa, probing so deeply inwards, that you break beyond, break through beyond the demarcation of inner and outer. And there is a view of God, which is on the one hand radically empirical, and bears a striking similarity to pristine awareness. Radically empirical. So I've written about this, drawn some parallels in my book, Mind and the Balance, showing what I think are not trivial parallels between the Dzogchen view and then right next door to it in India, Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta. And then coming over, looking at the trajectory from the Desert Fathers up to Nicholas of Cusa and showing, and then look for yourself, are these significant parallels? They seem to me to me, seem to be to me. And then right next door to Christianity, look over into the Kabbalah and the the ayin, or A-Y-I-N, it's pronounced ain I believe. But again, now you look at that, as opposed to some great big bearded man up in the sky who punishes people and all that kind of stuff. See, this is is a very, very different vision. This has no gender, it's not out there, it's emptiness, it's non-dual from emptiness, it's beyond all concepts. and then looking at the themes coming from quantum cosmology, the writings of Stephen Hawking, and so forth. These could indeed be exciting times to see a convergence the like of which humanity never seen before. But the real key here is not to just give a bunch of fancy talk and write interesting books, but like Anton Seilinger as a physicist being radically empirical, and as a contemplative being radically empirical, and see where, as we probe more and more deeply into experience, pushing back, pushing back the veils of assumptions and so forth, see whether there is indeed a deep conversion. So, this is real contemplative science. When we had the Minor Life meeting in 2003 in MIT, we had a number of very, very good. Buddhist speakers. Matthew Picard was there, Ajahn Amaro was there, George Dreyfus. Good, good lineup from the Buddhist side. I was there, of course. I also gave a presentation. And then it was Eric Lander, another of my favorite scientists, brilliant scientist, world class geneticist at MIT. And he heard the Buddhist speakers, including, of course, His Holiness, who was central, held the whole thing together. And his final comment. Eric Lander reminds me a lot of Anton Seilinger in terms of spirit, brilliance, clarity, open-mindedness, what I love about science. I criticize science a lot, but it's not really science that I'm criticizing. It's scientists who are not living up to their own ideals, ideals. as many Buddhists don't, as I don't as a Buddhist. I try. But Eric Lander and Anton Seilinger, boy, they've really won my admiration. And Eric Lander listened to these Buddhist presentations. I spoke, of course. What did I speak about? Oh, I remember. It was (laughs) Shamata. I don't know how it came to me but you know, whatever. And Matthew spoke about stage of Ajahn Amaro speak about mindfulness of course. And Eric Lander listened to all of this and he said, what you said is really fascinating. It's really, really interesting. Can you show us empirical evidence? Can you show us experience? Do some of you have experience of what you're talking about? If so, let us know. We'd like to experientially investigate with you. Our empirical means, your experiential means, we'd like to meet you head on, in a friendly collision. He was not speaking in a a combative way at all, but a collaborative. Can you give us more than these really wonderful talks? Can you show us the experience? Oh, yeah. So that's what this mind center is for. Can you show us the experience? So, let's continue. Probe more deeply into our own experience.